dropping on my face. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to review a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, streaming services have made accessing content so easy. There's no real need to purchase physical copies of movies anymore, and that's my complaint. When the VCR was invented and the home video market became more prominent, studios didn't have a comparison price point for VHS tapes. It was a new frontier. So the first cassettes available to the public ranged anywhere from $85 to $100. Similarly, when TV series were made available for the first time on DVD, seasons of The X-Files were $150 each. Each! I remember specifically because I needed to save up my money if I wanted to see what happened to Mulder and Scully next. But what makes DVDs and Blu-rays special are the bonus features. I am the guy that listens to director's commentary. I will watch every behind-the-scene extra. Deleted scenes, I'm there. And I get so agitated if a blooper reel isn't included. As a film major, nothing is more enjoyable than witnessing the process of a movie production. Seeing a group of collaborators on set working together to create is motivating. Until streaming services start including these types of bonus features, I hope that physical copies of media continue to exist so that generations of film fans can appreciate the art form. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of 5 stars. 1 star is skip it. 2 stars watch at your own risk. 3 stars standard fare. 4 stars worth checking out. And 5 stars must see. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. I'll keep the spoilers to a minimum, tangents to a maximum. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie Smokey and the Bandit from 1977. It was the feature directorial debut of Hal Needham, who would go on to helm the cannonball run, Hooper, and the cult classic wrestling film, Body Slam. Now for a little trivial trivia. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was loosely based on the life of Hal Needham, who began his career as a stunt double for actor Burt Reynolds on the television series Riverboat. This would be the start of their long-standing friendship and filmmaking collaboration. The screenplay was written by James Lee Barrett, Charles Shire, and Alan Mandel, based on a story by Robert L. Levy and Hal Needham. So the movie starts with a trucker being stopped by the Georgia State Patrol and arrested for transporting alcoholic beverages across state lines without the proper permits. The driver blames it on a bet that was made with Big and Little Enos. We're introduced to the pair visiting a local rodeo in search for The Bandit. The father-son combo is portrayed by Pat McCormick, who appeared in History of the World Part 1, Scrooged, and was a writer for Johnny Carson, Red Skelton, Danny Kaye, and Jimmy Dean, and Paul Williams, co-writer of popular songs We've Only Just Begun, Rainy Days and Mondays, and the soundtrack of Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas and the Muppet movie, including The Rainbow Connection. 
They come across Bo Bandit Darvel and his rig. The cool and suave character is played by Burt Reynolds, who acted in Deliverance, The Longest Yard, and was nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Boogie Nights. Big and Little Enos propose a challenge to Bandit. They'll pay him to run over to Texarkana to pick up 400 cases of Coors and bring it back in 28 hours. Bandit expresses some reluctance as when you take Coors east of Texas, it's bootlegging, which is against the law. But Big Enos gives him $80,000 worth of reasons. When Bandit asks why it's so important, he mentions that he is a racer in Atlanta's Southern Classic, and when he wins, he wants to celebrate in style. Bandit visits his partner Cletus, Snowman Snow, at his house. His wife Wynette is there to coldly greet him and warns Bandit not to involve her husband in any of his schemes. In the past, he's gotten them into trouble, which included time in prison. Cletus is performed by Jerry Reed, who's known for Gator, Hot Stuff, Bat 12, and contributed to the soundtrack with The Bandit, The Legend, and his biggest career hit, Eastbound and Down. Bandit explains the bet to Cletus, who couldn't turn down that kind of cash. They bring along his basset hound Fred and start on their journey. Snowman drives the big rig as Bandit navigates a black Pontiac Trans Am to distract any law enforcement, aka Smokies, away from the truck. They arrive at the Coors Distribution Center an hour ahead of schedule and load the cases of beer into the semi. On their way back to Georgia, Bandit is flagged down by a runaway bride in the middle of the road. She hops into the Trans Am and introduces herself as Carrie. She's 28 years old and was dancing at a home appliance show when she met a guy who she planned on marrying but had a change of heart. She's portrayed by Sally Field of Mrs. Doubtfire, Forrest Gump, and Soap Dish fame. She won an Academy Award for Best Actress in a Leading Role for Places in the Heart and Norma Ray. As they pull away, a van stops by her vacated car and a group of young men start vandalizing it. Then local law enforcement comes across the scene and we get our first appearance of Sheriff Buford T. Justice of Portague County. He approaches the men and asks if they'd seen the young lady in the car. They tell him she went off with a guy in a Pontiac Trans Am with the license plate Ban 1. The sheriff explains to his deputy that she was set to marry his son and by jilting him, she insulted his son, his town, and his authority. Buford T. Justice is portrayed by actor, comedian, and composer Jackie Gleason, known for The Hustler, Requiem for a Heavyweight, and the classic sitcom The Honeymooners. Bandit is talking with Snowman over the CB radio when the sheriff's voice appears on their channel, who warns that he's got trouble coming, which leads to high-speed pursuits across state lines and local jurisdictions. Here's a quote without context. Any cat who would paint his truck like this would go to a minister's funeral dressed in feathers. Smokey and the Bandit was a fun movie. Hollywood needs to start making more films like this again. It's perfect for the big screen because it had a good amount of action and stunts, but it's not overblown in its concept and certainly doesn't take itself too seriously. It has a classic movie structure. Within the first 15 minutes, you've been introduced to the main players, Bandit and Cletus. You know the goals and objectives. Run to Texarkana to pick up 400 cases of Coors. And you have the stakes. They'll earn $80,000 if they succeed, but bootlegging is against the law. Yes, the premise is simple, but all films don't need to have a convoluted plot. The pace never slowed, even during the blossoming romance between Bandit and Carrie. That's not a spoiler, it's pretty apparent from the moment they meet that there's chemistry. It's one of the only films that I've seen where Sally Field is having fun. It seems like filmmakers love to put her in very dramatic roles, and it's nice to see her smile and be playful. And I can see why Burt Reynolds was one of the most popular movie stars during this period. He's just the type of guy you want to hang out with for an afternoon. It definitely makes me want to watch more of his work from the 70s. 
I think his personality is encapsulated in a scene where Bandit loses the cops that are chasing him, and Burt Reynolds looks directly into the camera and smiles. While I've never been a fan of breaking the fourth wall, he's the type of guy to pull it off, and this is the kind of movie where it totally works. The movie was shot in Georgia with parts filmed in Florida and California, but this has a very rural Middle America vibe. I know I've said it before, but it's nice seeing on screen dirt roads and forests versus paved streets and skyscrapers sometimes. Not surprisingly, the stunts were coordinated well, as this was Hal Needham's specialty. There were plenty of car chases, tires skidding, dust clouds forming, and it wasn't perfect. Many action sequences today feel like they're so practiced and planned. These seem more natural, like watching an episode of Cops. It's all developing in front of you. The dialogue was entertaining, especially the CB radio talk. Between all the handles and the various nomenclature, it provided many laughs along the way. Also, Jackie Gleason and his southern expressions and mannerisms were great. I never felt like I was watching Ralph Cramden. It's such a different character and he embodies it. This is something to look out for. Fans of the Dukes of Hazard television series will spot cameos by three cast members. John Schneider, Bo Duke, Sonny Schroyer, Deputy Strait, and Ben Jones, Cooter Davenport. Smokey and the Bandit was produced by Ray Stark from Ray Star Productions, who is responsible for Steel Magnolias, Annie, and The Goodbye Girl. The cinematography was captured by Bobby Byrne, whose filmography includes Bull Durham, Sixteen Candles, Going Berserk, and the series Mad About You. It was edited by Walter Hanneman, known for The Villain, Two Minute Warning, and The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, and Angelo Ross, who worked on Diary of a Bachelor, Mr. Rock and Roll, and Master Blaster. The score was composed by Bill Justice. He wrote the music for Hopper and The Villain. He incorporated elements of country western, rockabilly, and bluegrass, including fiddles, dobros, and banjos. The runtime is 1 hour, 36 minutes. It had a budget of $4.3 million and grossed $126 million at the box office. It was nominated for Best Film Editing at the 1978 Academy Awards and Best Actress in a Motion Picture, Comedy, or Musical at the 1978 Golden Globes. There were two theatrical sequels, Smokey and the Bandit 2 in 1980 featuring many of the same cast, and Smokey and the Bandit 3 in 1983 which was considered a box office bomb. Ultimately, the movie comes down to Mr. Big, Gear Jammin', Redneck Heaven, Wedding Posse, Attention Getter, Frog, Bridge Out, Procession, Bar Fight, Moose Twit, and Four Miles. I'll be honest, in my eyes, this is a five-star movie. It's everything I like. But as an objective movie critic, I'd probably give it four stars, so I'll meet in the middle with four and a half. If you've seen Smokey and the Bandit and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along, each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. I've never been a huge fan of the late night talk show. They always seem tame and paint by the numbers. But every so often, a few special ones come along that propel the medium in a different direction. The Late Show with David Letterman or The Magic Hour with Magic Johnson. Obviously, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson set the gold standard for the format of how late night talk shows should be. That type of legacy only comes once in a generation. Then, in 2005, Craig Ferguson became the host of The Late Late Show on CBS. He was an unlikely choice compared to some of the other names floating around at that time, but he won the job with a combination of charm and self-deprecation. 
Craig was born in Scotland, left school at the age of 16, developed a drinking problem, moved to New York in his 20s where he worked odd jobs, came back to Scotland. He played in a few punk bands, including one called The Dream Boys, with future Whovian doctor Peter Capaldi. He started doing stand-up on the club tour and festival circuit. During this time, his dependence on alcohol became worse. When he was 29, he woke up on Christmas morning and decided he was going to commit suicide off the Tower Bridge in London. The room he stayed in was above a bar, and as he was about to leave, the bartender offered him a drink to celebrate Christmas. He ended up forgetting to kill himself. Less than two months later, he decided to get sober. He eventually went back to the U.S. where he found success playing the stuffy boss Mr. Wick on The Drew Carey Show from 1996 to 2003. When he became the host of The Late Late Show on CBS in 2005, the beginning episodes were stereotypical of the standard talk show format. When his father passed in January 2006, Craig did a monologue that changed the course of his late night show. He said that he was heartbroken, and you can tell. But even amidst all the sadness, he managed to find the humor. It wasn't force. It wasn't scripted. Seeing that kind of honesty in late night was so refreshing and made you connect with Craig Ferguson. He found the magic formula. Craig took the reins and made the show his own. There were puppets, odd sketches, lip-syncing, awkward pauses, and secretariat. In 2010, Craig was joined by a robot skeleton sidekick named Jeff Peterson, who was created by Grant Mahara from Mythbusters and voiced by a talented stand-up comedian and impressionist, Josh Robert Thompson. The show took chances. There was a memorable episode where he interviewed Stephen Fry for a full hour, very much like the original host of The Late Late Show, Tom Snyder. There was no audience, and they spoke of a variety of subjects, such as language, technology, the perception of class, and what it is to be an American from an outsider's perspective. The Late Show with Craig Ferguson went from 2005 to 2015. There are many clips to view online, and they're all enjoyable, but I've selected three for the Matt Watch That Playback playlist. Craig Ferguson on Britney Spears, and Craig Ferguson Laugh Attacks Part 1 and 2. If you've never seen it, I hope this is an introduction to the most original, eccentric late-night talk show. If you have, I hope you enjoy the reminder. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Sports Night. Created by prolific writer Aaron Sorkin, it was a short-lived series, continuing the trend. Every show that I like seems to get cancelled. It's gotten to the point where I wait until the end of season two to decide if I'm going to watch it or not. I've had too many series go after one season to ever commit again. Sports Night starred Peter Krause from Parenthood, Josh Charles from The Good Wife, Felicity Huffman from Desperate Housewives, Joshua Molina from The West Wing, Sabrina Lloyd from Slider and Robert Guillaume from Benson. It's about the -the behind-the-scenes lives of the anchors and production crew of a nightly sports show. Think of a less scripted version of SportsCenter. While it was critically acclaimed, it never found an audience, and there were two theories as to why. Many people believe that since it had the word sports in its title, the audience was either turned off because they weren't fans, or assumed the sports aspect was more prevalent than it actually was. If that was the reason, it's a shame because it really was about a group of characters and their interactions. Sports was present, but not the main storyline. The second was, the network believed the audience didn't know where to laugh. This was back in 1998, and sitcoms were still going strong. The half-hour comedy without an audience was a fairly new phenomenon, but believing that people couldn't spot a joke and needed to be prompted to laugh shows how little the executives thought of the audience. 
To prove this point, when they released the box set of Sports Night, in Season 1, they added a laugh track. It was as disingenuous as a politician's promise. There was a scene where the character Jeremy Goodwin went on this huge rant. It was great, but at the end of the speech, the laughter and applause from the fake audience was so egregious I wanted to find the producer and spit in his coffee. I hope they release the series as originally broadcast. It was really something special. Sports Night ran for two seasons, 45 episodes from 1998 to 2000. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. I plan on having interactive elements, so follow, subscribe, and like for all the latest news, updates, and polls. Until next time, hell, I gotta go. He incorporated elements of country western, rockabilly, and bluegrass, including fillows. Do- fillows? <laughs> Who was created by Grant Imahara from Mistbusters? Whoa. Bandit is talking with Snowman over the CB radio when the sheriff's a voice. When the sheriff's a voice, uh.